Father God, thank you that we can gather to worship. Uh, we thank you, Father, that we, as a part of our worship, can open your word. And, and actually, Father, something supernatural can happen. Your spirit can speak to us and direct us and teach us uh, in ways that you use to change us. And would you do that this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in Matthew uh, chapter 18, the apostle Peter poses a question to Jesus. Uh, he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Uh, in other words, Lord, how many times do I allow uh, someone to hurt me? How many times do I allow someone to mistreat me? Or how many times do I allow someone to wrong me before I say enough is enough? Now you've done it. Now I'm mad. Now I'm going to get my pound of flesh out of you. I'm going to get revenge. Peter wants to know at what point you stop forgiving someone who continues to wrong you. Uh, he even has his own, his own ideas about this. Before Jesus can answer, he offers up a number. He says, Jesus, what about seven? And I'm guessing that Peter is thinking, you know, that's being extremely forgiving. Uh, that, that, that's really bending over backwards for people who are offending you. And I have to admit, forgiving somebody seven times sounds pretty generous to me too. Um, most of us operate on the principle if somebody sins against you one time, well, you know, everybody makes mistakes. So of course, of course I'll be forgiving. If they sin against you a second time, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, I thought we just covered that territory. And now here you are doing this again to me. If they sin against you a third time, it's kind of like, uh, wait a minute, time out. Uh, we're just going to keep repeating this. You know, I'm, I'm kind of done with this. This is over. Uh, Peter doubles that number. Uh, not three times, but, you know, he doubles it and adds one. So he asked Jesus, what about seven, Jesus? And Jesus responds, you recall, with a story. It's a story about a, a king uh, who has a servant that owes him a vast sum of money so great that it's impossible to pay back. It would be like uh, perhaps one of us owing a billion or more dollars uh, in debt and to be brought before the one to whom we owe that debt and have that person forgive them. That's what happens to this, this servant. But that servant turns right around, goes out on the street, sees another individual servant who owes him money, a very small sum of money, like a hundred bucks, and he won't forgive him, has the guy put in jail. Well, back to the king. The king finds out about that unmerciful act on the part of the guy he just forgave this astronomically large debt, and, uh, and the king exacts punishment on that unmerciful servant. That's the story that uh, Jesus tells. And the point of the story is this, really. It's, it's if you truly understand how much you've been forgiven, well then, that will make you a forgiver. That's the point of the story. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you don't really get it. Not really. You've been forgiven way more than you understand. Uh, your heavenly father has forgiven you of a, just a mountain load of debt. Think about it. All the times you let friends down, Peter. All the times you acted selfishly or pridefully. Peter was good at that. All the times you hurt people by what you said or by what you did or chose to lie instead of tell the truth. All the times you failed to honor God. All the times you failed to obey him, failed to give God thanks or be grateful when you should have, all the times you didn't trust him, all the times you just plain denied God, all that stuff, Peter, innumerable sins, forgiven, forgiven. So how could you possibly put a number or a limit on the times that you would forgive someone who has wronged you? Peter, the answer is not seven. It's not even technically 70 times seven. The answer, Peter, is that you forgive indefinitely. You keep on forgiving just as your heavenly father keeps on forgiving you. Jesus' point is powerful. It's convicting. It makes you kind of swallow hard, you know, because which of us here this morning realizing that we have been forgiven an incredible debt of sin a debt we could never repay, 
Which of us would want to argue with Jesus about this? I mean, how could we possibly hold a grudge against anyone when we've been forgiven all the grudges that we've held against people? How could we not forgive the person who spoke evil against us when we consider that we've been forgiven all of the evil that we have spoken against others? The the big point is that our slowness to forgive others has its roots in forgetfulness. We forget how much God has forgiven us or we just haven't stopped to consider our own debts, our own magnitude of sin. Now, having said all of that does not change the fact that there are few things in life that are more difficult than forgiving someone who has wronged you. That really is hard to do, especially somebody who has wronged you repeatedly, not once, not twice, not, but wronged you repeatedly. And to complicate all of that even more, Jesus says right here in this passage in Matthew 18 that we're not just to forgive. We are to forgive, he says, from the heart. Uh, verse 35, he says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you. He's talking about that king towards that unmerciful servant. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Wow. <laughs> that means you got to say it and mean it. <laughs> That's challenging. That's very challenging. Uh, I think of the spouse who's been deserted by their mate for another man or another woman. Jesus says to that spouse, forgive them. Or to the child that grew up in an awful situation, an abusive situation. I think Jesus would say to that child as he or she grows, you, you need to forgive them. Or the family who's called to forgive the drunk driver who hit and killed one of the members of their family or the person who loaned money and was never paid back, uh, never offered an apology, never even given an explanation or the person deserted by a close friend in a time of great need, that time when they needed that friend the most or an employer who cheated you or vice versa, an employee who cheated an employer or the person who's been slandering you for no explainable reason. I think Jesus would say, forgive, forgive from the heart. And not once, not seven, not even 70 times seven to forgive and keep on forgiving. Why? Because that is living out of the gospel, the very gospel itself. When somebody wrongs us, you know, there are basically two responses that we can have. Uh, One is I either learn to forgive and therefore free up my own heart Uh, I I learned to forgive and I free up my mind. I'm not always thinking about or ruminating on what this person has done to the anger man. Let me just got a little parenthesis there. You know, when we talk about forgiveness, some will say that you only offer forgiveness when someone asks to be forgiven. Well, that's not true. In order to restore a relationship, it does always take two people to restore a relationship. It takes two people asking to be forgiven. That will restore a relationship. But in spite of uh, restoring a relationship, uh, you are capable of actually forgiving people who don't deserve your forgiveness and are not asking for it. And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. Um, This whole thing of forgiveness, you either learn to forgive and, and when you do, you can live with a free heart or a free mind or the alternative And a lot of times we go down this path and we're being honest. The alternative is we just slowly grow more and more bitter. We become more and more angry. We become more and more judgmental. And the way the judgment thing works is we're not only judging the person who's hurt us, it starts spilling out into other areas of our life. And pretty soon uh, there isn't... um, There isn't much distance between us and seeking our own revenge. Little ways, maybe big ways that we can get back, get even, get a pound of flesh, so to speak. And uh, interestingly, you know, we gather in this place because we are forgiven. Think about it. We sing, we pray, we give, we rehearse the gospel together, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, we celebrate the fact that it is him and his work, his life, his death, and so his resurrection that that 
gives us or relieves us from the weight of the debt of sin that we each have. We are essentially a community that celebrates forgiveness. So in light of all these things, we are therefore to be a people who forgive. That's supposed to actually characterize us as a group and as individuals. And when we do that, we are acting like our Heavenly Father. We are acting like our Savior Jesus. We are acting like our Comforter and Encourager, the Holy Spirit. And nothing displays really the character or the reality of God more than our willingness to forgive someone who doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Uh, what I'd like to do this morning in our final look at Joseph's life, we've kind of, this is the third week we spent on Joseph. I want to try and see what enabled him a man who had been mistreated for sure. A man who had been wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and wrongly sentenced, wrongly put into jail. I want us to see what enabled him to forgive those who had wronged him. And not just in lip service, but actually to forgive them from the heart. Uh, Joseph is a, just such a man, a man who learned to forgive. And my hope and my prayer for us is that uh, as we look at Joseph's story, we would gain some insight about God. That's the key. It's, it's not six principles on forgiving that we're talking about. We're talking about learning something, <coughs> excuse me, something about God. That's COVID. COVID coughing, not really. Uh, we, we want to learn something about God that would enable us to be better forgivers. Because if we become better forgivers, well, I, <laughs> it stands to reason, doesn't it? Then our marriages will be better. Our relationships will be better. And uh, our witness for Jesus as we represent him to each other and to people out there will just be better, truer to principle, better representing who Jesus actually is. So I'm going to encourage you, if you got your Bibles, to turn to Genesis 42. Uh, you remember the uh, Pharaoh of Egypt, by God's design, placed 30-year-old Joseph in the second most powerful position in all of Egypt. It is now Joseph's job to execute a plan of storing food during the seven years of abundant harvest that Egypt has been experiencing, and then to ration that food back out to the people uh, during the seven years of famine that are coming. And the fact that there were going to be seven years of abundance and then seven years of, of famine had been communicated to Pharaoh by God in a dream, a dream which you recall Joseph interpreted for Pharaoh. And that's what launched Joseph, you know, out of the prison and into the palace. That was kind of almost an instant thing. It seems like it took place very, very quickly. And that's how and that's why. Now, by the time we come to chapter 42, Egypt has already experienced seven years of abundance. And it is now experiencing seven years of famine. And we find out that all other peoples and nations of this region are impacted very greatly by this famine as well, including Joseph's family down there or up there in Canaan. The family uh, that Joseph actually hasn't seen now for 22 years. Uh, our first week together, we learned that when Joseph was 17, his own brothers sold him into slavery, you might recall. Uh, and they did that because they hated him. It says that five times. They hated him. They were jealous of him. Joseph had the unfortunate of growing up uh, in a family where there was all kinds of favoritism and jealousy. Joseph was the recipient of that favoritism. His father had given him a special coat, long-sleeved coat or multicolored coat. Uh, and his brothers, every time they would see him in the coat, just made him want to hate him all the more, right? Uh, we saw Joseph telling on his brothers when they weren't performing the way they should. We saw Joseph telling uh, his dreams. He had several dreams, which he just loved sharing with the family, all about the family bowing down to him. So finally, one day, his brothers had had enough, and they decided to get rid of him. And the way they did it was to sell him into slavery uh, down in Egypt, and so now, as it turns out, their brother Joseph, the one they sold into slavery some, you know, many years later, is now the governor over all of Egypt. And they badly need some food. So if you've got a Bible, turn to uh, chapter 42 of Genesis. If you don't, you can just listen attentively or just try to look like you're listening attentively. I can't tell the difference. And uh, you can follow along in this very 
fascinating story where we see God at work. Chapter 42, this is what we read. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? You feel any of that? That's not the nicest, warmest way to communicate. Uh, He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Um, What's so interesting is that this is Jacob wanting to send 10 of the brothers down to Egypt to go get grain so that the the larger family or tribe uh, will not die, will not perish. It says in verse 3, Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin. This is favoritism. Benjamin is, of course, Joseph's brother. Uh, He did not want to send him with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. The other ten, who cares? But he doesn't want harm to come to Benjamin. And so Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Just a little context here. This will be helpful, perhaps. Understand that uh, Jacob's family by this time is somewhere numbering between, who knows, 500, 1,000. You recall that Abraham, uh, when Abraham uh, went to war with earlier on in the book of Genesis, he had 318 soldiers at his disposal who were part of his household, which means that he had to have had more more than double that number in his total household, uh, you know, under his uh, authority and influence. And so now here's Jacob. Jacob's got 12 sons. So it's a very conservative guesstimate to think that Jacob's family is a thousand plus. A very large, large group of people. This is a powerful man with powerful, uh, you know, family around him. And so when we read about Jacob sending his 10 sons down to get grain, what we're doing is that the writer of Genesis is letting us view this whole circumstance solely from Joseph and the 10 brothers perspective. But what almost certainly happened is if you're going to feed a group of people this large, there's a huge caravan of people going down with these 10 brothers and their 10 donkeys. There's a huge caravan traveling down to Egypt to get grain. What is more, that's what almost certainly made them noticeable to Joseph. You can be assured that Joseph, being the number two in command over Egypt, isn't meeting every foreigner who comes to town and wants to buy grain. But if a large party comes, a party of note, a party of wealth, a party that gets people's attention, well, Joseph will be obviously brought into a scenario like that. And in the providence of God, that's without doubt what has happened here. The reason Joseph does meet up with his brothers, it's not because Joseph is meeting every foreigner who comes looking for grain. It's because he's been alerted to the fact that these people have come. They've come from Canaan. They're 10 brothers, etc. And so, yeah, Joseph shows up. Got it? Okay, so now, verse 6, now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked from the land of Canaan. They replied to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him because Joseph's dressed like an Egyptian. He um, walks like an Egyptian. He talks like, see, there's a song like that, I think. Uh, He doesn't look like the old Joseph, not at all. He's much older, and of course, he's an Egyptian. Then he remembered his dreams about them, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. You see, of course, that would be a silly thing to say to just 10 brothers who show up to buy some grain. Spies, who cares? We're talking about the empire of Egypt here. But if they came with a large, large caravan uh, representing thousands uh, or a thousand plus of people, uh, that would be of note. And it wouldn't be out of line to wonder if they were coming as spies, spies to spy out the land and find out ways to steal grain or take grain. And that's what Joseph is accusing them of, because Joseph has a plan. Joseph is going to test his brothers over and over and over again. And we'll see what those tests are in a moment. But that's what Joseph is up to. Joseph has pretty good reason to suspect that the character of these brothers is not so great. But he's going to test them and find out. Find out if any changes have happened in them like have happened to him. So that's what Joseph is up to. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man. 
uh, who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. That's Joseph. They're saying, you know, Joseph is dead. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. How many here think he enjoyed doing that? I think he did. I think he definitely did. It was, you know, the opportunity, lock them up, see how they like it. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And they proceeded to do uh, this. They proceeded to do. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. You know what they did prior to Joseph. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. That's a little detail we didn't know before. We now know that when they sold Joseph into slavery with the Ishmaelites, he was pleading with them, don't do this, brothers, don't do this. You know, and uh, what did they do? It says, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. So that's kind of a little more background information. Reuben replied, and this is so typical family uh, interaction. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boys, but you wouldn't listen? No, not at all. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. So they, they see the hand of God in this as punishing them for sins committed uh, earlier on. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. So the whole time he's listening to their conversation, taking all this in. And Joseph is assessing all along in all of these episodes, he's assessing, are my brothers the same men they were 22 years ago or have they changed? He turned away from the men and he began to weep, but then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. So Simeon's the unlucky brother who gets chosen to spend time in jail. And here's a, just a little kind of a helpful tidbit. Simeon is a brother who's already fallen out with his dad, Jacob. Simeon and Levi were two brothers that committed an atrocity against a Shechemite village uh, back uh, earlier and uh, brought a lot of concern and uh, chagrin and, and just fear to Jacob because Jacob thought that the local peoples were going to attack him because of what Simeon did. Uh, Simeon and Levi both later on, uh, instead of receiving a blessing from their father, they basically receive a curse from their father. They're told that they will be scattered among their, the, uh, their brother's land and people. And that's exactly what happened. The tribe of Simeon never, never really occupied any land of their own. They actually lived within the boundaries of the tribe of Judah. So uh, just to say, Simeon was never one of Jacob's favorites. Are you with me so far? Let's keep going. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags... <coughs> excuse me, with grain to put each man's silver back in his sacks and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey and he saw his silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. And their hearts sank. And they turned to each other trembling. And they said, what is this that God has done to us? They're now fearful that they're going to be accused of stealing, of not paying for the grain. And uh, they don't, of course, understand how on earth this happened. When they came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, the man who was Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We're not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more. And the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. And then the man who was Lord over the land said to us, this is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me so I will know that you are not spies but honest men and then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. Here's the thing. These brothers, 
When they got back to their father, Jacob, they're wholly expecting to turn right around with Benjamin, go right back and get Simeon. That's what they were expecting to do. But that's not exactly how things unfold. Uh, It says in verse 36, as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sacks was his pouch of silver. And when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father, Jacob, said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Wah, wah, wah. Then Reuben said to his father, Reuben was one of the best fathers you're ever going to read about. He said, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. See, they're thinking of going right back down to, to Egypt. And uh, getting Simeon out, you know, taking Benjamin down there and so. But look at what Jacob says, the dad. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. So what is Jacob saying here? Jacob is saying bye-bye to Simeon. Jacob has no intention of sending his sons back down there to get grain. He's hoping that the grain they brought is going to be sufficient to get them through this famine, uh, yada, 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 and goodbye to Simeon, uh, chapter 43. Now, the famine was still severe in the land. This is God at work, you see. God is going to put Jacob in a situation where he cannot say no to going or sending his sons back down to Egypt. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? That's a question that we're going to see Joseph ask over and over. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know uh, what he would say? How are we to know he would say, bring your brother down here. And then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. That's how bad the famine has become. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. So they're going to bribe him. I mean, they're going to try to get on the good side of Joseph. A little balm, a little honey, some spice, some myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds, a little nut mix. They're going to take down as well. Uh, Take double the amount of silver with you for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once and may God almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So Jacob is surrendering to the will of God. He knows his whole family's going to die if they don't go down to get more grain. So the men took the gifts and double the amount of silver and Benjamin also, and they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. You bet they were, because this is not what normally happens. Uh, people who come to buy, even people with the buying large amounts of grain are not generally entertained at an Egyptian official's household for lunch. And so they thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks. The first time he wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. <laughs> Guaranteed, Joseph doesn't give a whip about 10 donkeys That's why just another small indicator in this story that we're actually talking about a very, very large entourage, a great many animals, 
not just the 10 brothers donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. Please, sir, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. And so we have brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in the sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that they were to eat there. And when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house and they bowed down before him to the ground and he asked them how they were. And then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? And they replied, your servant, our father is still alive and well. And they bowed low to him to pay him honor. The dreams coming into play. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son, deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph, hurried out and looked for, the place, for a place to weep. He went into his private room and he wept there. A lot of weeping. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself, the brothers by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him uh, by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews for that is detestable to Egyptians. So the brothers are at one table, Joseph is at another, and then the lower uh, Egyptians uh, on the totem pole also ate at their own table. My, 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 how nothing is new under the sun. Prejudice, racism, all kinds of uh, division. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages for the firstborn to the youngest. <laughs> that had to have them scratching their heads. And they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. And so they feasted and drank freely with him. I'm sure all the while just puzzled as puzzled could be about what was going on. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys they had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. So this is a special cup that Joseph uses. Divination is condemned in the Old Testament because it was a practice of appealing to God's for insight, for wisdom, for, you know, what's going to happen next, God, or do me a favor, God. But understand, Joseph is practicing something with this cup in relation to his God, Jehovah God. Uh, so this is not Joseph, you know, appealing to gods of Egypt. Uh, this is something, uh, a special cup that Joseph has used to uh, divine from God what is going to happen or what isn't going to happen. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? Makes Perfect sense. Good question. If any of your servants is found to have it, we will die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. They're quite confident they didn't do anything wrong. So sure, go ahead and search. Very well, then he said, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered their sack to the ground, opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. The drama is building is the point there. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And at this, they tore their clothes and then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. 
Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? In other words, don't you know that my God tells me things I need to know? What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? Rhetorical question, they can't. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. And they're referring back to the sin that they committed with Joseph. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Do you see what Joseph has done here? Once upon a time, these brothers were so fed up with the favoritism and dysfunction in their family. They got rid of a favorite son. Now they have a second favorite son. And Joseph is offering them the perfect means by which to get rid of the second favorite son. Just get up, go home, leave him there with the, the governor of Egypt and goodbye Benjamin, you see. Now, son number one and son number two, favorite son number one, favorite son number two are gone out of their hair forever. Joseph has just teed up the ball for them to see what these brothers will do now with the son that's resented. Have they grown? Are they different? And uh, Judah begins to explain uh, that that is not something they could do. They cannot go back without Benjamin. He says in verse 30, so now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant, this is Judah speaking, guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Joseph is beginning to see some changes that have happened in his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. And then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and the Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? I'm not sure why I asked that question again, but he does. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. That's the understatement of the world. Because imagine, it is right now in the sequence of this story, it is revenge time. <laughs> uh, the brothers know it. This has been a perfect setup. Now, now jo this is Joseph, the brother. And uh, perfect time for revenge on them for their sins of the past. What an opportunity. There they are right in front of them. Your enemies, your betrayers. And what is more, you are the law. That was Joseph. Joseph had all the power. Joseph made up all the rules. He can do anything he wants to do. And Joseph's brothers fear that he will, that he will do his worst. But it's right here that we actually discover why Joseph was able to forgive his brothers for all the injustices of the past. In verse four, it says this, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. 
Joseph says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. I know now that you were angry. I understand now that you were jealous. I know now that I hurt you. My father hurt you. Uh, I get that. I didn't then, but I do get that now. I see how I did nothing to make your life anything but miserable. And later Joseph says this to his brothers. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you see what's happened to Joseph? Joseph has discovered over the years that what others may mean for evil, God can take and somehow weave it together for good. That's what God had done in Joseph's life over the years. In the more than 20 years that Joseph had been in Egypt, uh, he had learned a lot, first of all, about himself, uh, his sinfulness, his debt that he owed, his need for mercy, his arrogance, his self-righteousness, his lack of concern for anybody but himself. And he had also learned a lot about God, God's graciousness, God's forgiveness, God's wisdom, and God's ability to overcome evil with good. You see, Joseph had come to understand that no matter what the evil one may be up to, and let's stop right there for a moment. What was the evil one up to? Well, the evil one, you recall, wanted to destroy Jacob and his family through this famine, because if he could destroy Jacob and his family, that would then mean that all of the promises given to Jacob would not, could not be fulfilled. And that's what the evil one is up to. But God, as I said last week, is way out in front of the evil one, working his plan and his purpose, a plan and purpose that nobody saw. You see, Joseph had also come to understand that no matter what sinful man or men may do to each other, God is capable of taking all the bad and weaving something from it that is good, something that even accomplishes his special purpose, his special plan, something that even brings glory to himself. That is exactly what God does, of course, centuries later with the cross, with Jesus. The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost is preaching a sermon to a multitude of people. And this is what he says. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. So there, he, he takes the evidence for who Jesus is and he kind of puts it right up under their nose. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God made the most evil event in all of human history, the killing of his son, his innocent son, into the event that accomplished the most good in all of human history, namely the salvation of billions of people, people adopted into God's family. Only God can do something like that. Uh, Joseph simply learned that lesson as it was lived out in his life. Bad things would happen. Joseph would hold on to God. Who else is he going to hold on to? Bad things would happen. Joseph would trust God. Who else is he going to trust in? He would cry out to God. God would work in Joseph's circumstances and in his life, changing Joseph, not necessarily changing his circumstances, and also growing him, growing him up and making him ready for what's coming next. God would use these bad circumstances toward a good purpose. And Joseph learned all this stuff along the way. Trusting God, holding on to God. I think it was Joseph's 13 years of struggle where he learned about himself that he was in fact a debtor, a sinner, a lousy brother and an arrogant son. But he also learned about God, that God is in control. And God loved him. 
And God wasn't going to leave him alone. God was going to work through circumstances in his life to change him and to bless him and, in fact, to bless others. And so Joseph learned to surrender to God. He learned to say, God, although my situation is a mess, I am trusting in you to make something of it and something of me and to use me to bless others. And what did he do with his family? Well, I have to believe he just simply gave his family up to God. God, you work. God, may you change them. And here we are 22 years later. Joseph is able to see what God was doing. He sees the why of it all. What an amazing, amazing, amazing work of of God. God has been at work in the hearts of his brothers just as he has been at work in Joseph's heart. You know, it's, uh, it's really easy. I think you'd agree. It's easy in life to remember being ripped off. Uh, It's easy to remember being wronged or abused or shorted or slighted or accused. Any time that we have been treated unfairly, we can actually, even if it was years ago, probably rehearse the details of what surrounded that event. And it's interesting, the evil one wants us to remember those things, every detail. Uh, he says, don't, don't you dare forget it. Don't forget what they did. Don't forget what they said. Uh, don't let that slide. Roll that over in your mind over and over and over. And that is what we do because of the brokenness in us. But the fact is, friends, it, if you don't find it in yourself to let go of those kinds of things, in other words, to forgive them, those memories, no matter how distant, they, they tend to turn into things like anger and bitterness and resentment and self-pity. And in time, those things literally harden a human heart and make it bitter, make it ugly, make it such that you won't look anything at all like Jesus. You won't be able to see God's hand of involvement in your life because you're just blinded by bitterness and frustration and self-centeredness. Friends, forgiving others their sins against us is acting exactly like Jesus. You see that, right? There's another man who we run into in the Bible who knew an awful lot about things like abandonment and betrayal and hardships and falsely being accused and being beaten and being abused and being imprisoned. And uh, he always had people hot on his heels looking to destroy him. And he wrote these words. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, the day is coming when when all accounts will need to be paid up. Nobody, not anybody, gets a pass. All accounts will be settled and all accounts will be settled perfectly, justly, and appropriately. Paul goes on to say, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, in other words, don't you give him what he deserves, give him what he wants, give him food, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's really funny. The commentators don't exactly know what to do with that expression. On the one hand, some will say, well, what you're doing by by loving an enemy and and meeting an enemy's needs is you're putting these burning coals on them and they're going to reap greater judgment. But other commentators will say, no, what's what's going on here is it's saying uh, you loving them and caring for them will cause them to feel ashamed of what they're doing and to turn and possibly repent. So two very opposite kinds of things here. Uh, you, you figure out what it means. I'm not sure. But, but here's the concluding thought, the big point, and that is do not be overcome by evil. If somebody has done evil to you, you're not going to overcome it by getting back at them with evil. Instead, he says, but overcome evil with good. Believe me, Paul knew that you can't love people. You can't do good to people who you are unable or unwilling to forgive. 
of course, Jesus is the embodiment of this, is he not? I mean, he died for sinners. He died for you and me. The Bible describes us this way, that we are people who do not understand God, do not seek God. Uh, We have turned away from God. Our tongues are full of deceit. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. We are quick to shed blood. We do not fear God, meaning give him priority in our lives. That's what a sinner is. That's who we are. And yet Jesus died for us so that he could forgive us. And so friends, we, we see the healing and the wholeness that happened in Joseph's heart and in Joseph's family. It brought healing and wholeness to his broken, dysfunctional family as it was Joseph forgiving that brought them back together. And you know what? We receive and experience healing and spiritual wholeness in our lives because of the forgiveness of Jesus. So much so that we therefore have the the resources to turn around and forgive people who don't deserve our forgiveness. So the question we started with, uh, how many times do we forgive? The answer is as many as it takes to look like Jesus. As many as it takes to honor Jesus. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So my my encouragement to you, Thanksgiving is coming. Probably you're all going to break the law and go be with more than one family and gather around a table or something. I don't know, maybe, maybe you aren't, but... You might be sitting at a table with somebody who's right there, a family member that you, you need to forgive. They've bugged you forever. Maybe still are. Um, I would just challenge you to figure out a way by God's grace because Jesus has forgiven you, not because they're asking you to forgive them, but because Jesus has forgiven you. Forgive them and be free in that. Be at peace in that. You don't have to seek or get revenge. Forgive them and forgive them from the heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the life of Joseph. There's so many things that we learn and that we see there. Even more though, God, we thank you for the life of Jesus who is our life. We thank you that because of the forgiveness that we have given to us by him, we can actually turn around and do the impossible. And that's forgive those who injured us. Forgive those who repeatedly harm us. Help us to love our enemies as you have loved us, Jesus. And we would be so bold as to ask that that might change the relationship, change them, make them able to see who you are, your goodness. Thank you, Father, for this time to worship together, to reflect together, and to be challenged by your word. We ask and we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.